0: How you guys doing? Good. Did you spend the last month or since the last time I taught just digging into Nahum? Is it now your favorite book? <laughs> no, but maybe you can find it quicker. So we're, Nahum, and as usual, and I've said it multiple times, I don't practice at home. I have no idea how long this goes. It always ends up. Like an hour on the dot. It just worked God's good. It works out that way. I'm thinking it might not be that long tonight, but you've probably never heard that before, huh? We should get out here early tonight as you're looking at your watches. <laughs> but most of the people that I listen to, commentaries and people I respect and as I study, have been going through all the Old Testament prophets. So they're like another one. So they kind of go quicker. And uh, since I didn't do it before, I did a lot more background. And most of the time, they spend half or more of the time in Chapter One. And I've just about covered all of Chapter One already. So if things go the way I've been hearing, it might go quicker. But I don't, just out of curiosity, um, did anybody not hear Nahum one, the last two times? I'm sure there's people in here that weren't here. Okay, so we'll do a quick recap. Um, and of those, how many people like are familiar with Nahum? I can think of maybe one person in here that might, might be somewhat. So obviously Nineveh is a, a bad city with an evil king and some mean people, and they were invading Israel, and we already talked about some of the horrendous things that they did. And archaeologists, within the last... 100 years, just finally found it. So when God said he was going to thoroughly destroy it, which is basically what this whole book is about, God pronouncing judgment on Nineveh, no one actually even knew where it was. People were standing on top of the ruins and didn't know it was underneath them. And they just recently found it. So God, when we're about to read the whole book and you're going to hear God with some harsh things, and when he says it's going to be thorough, it was thorough. So God is very good at anything that he does. Some heavy things, and uh, the, the book Nahum is obviously written by Nahum, whose name, almost and every, almost everyone I've ever heard, mean, his name means comfort, which kind of sounds odd because of the message that he's bringing. Um, and ultimately, like I've, I mentioned before too, that only book of the Bible I'm aware of that actually, that Daniel spoke to other people, other countries, other nations in his um, prophecies and in his book, but this is the only book generally written to them, to, to other than Jews, a Jewish prophet writing to other people, and he is Jewish, and he is writing to other people. Um, Isaiah, other people did have messages for other nations, but their book was wholly generally intended for the Jews, and this one wasn't, so, but he is a Jew, and this does bring comfort to them. So knowing that your enemy is being destroyed is comforting, so, but it's kind of a play on words, I think, how God has called this book comfort as he's writing to people that are going to be destroyed. So uh, let's just lift this up, please. Father, I just pray that you would bless your people, that you would speak, that hearts would be open to receive what you have for us, um, that anything that's said that's for Any specific person that you, by your spirit, would make it personal, that it would be real, that it would be your word, you tell us that you're a good shepherd, Lord, and uh, you lead your people into green pastures, and you know what each person needs, Lord, so if you don't open our ears and speak to us, then uh, we don't know what's coming from you, and we do need to be fed, Lord, uh, our souls, our spirits are hungry, Lord, for you, and uh, we just pray that you would be personal and uh, clear in how you individually speak to us. So we just thank you that we don't have to partake of your wrath because of your Son, and uh, help us to just walk in that newness of life that you've made available to us. In Jesus' name, amen. So a little background. Uh, he, there is a couple events that he talks about. One already happened in chapter 1, and in chapter 3, I believe it is, he speaks of another event and those two events, one was 614 B.C., one was 663 B.C., so we know the time about when he came. Um, his contemporaries were Jeremiah, Habakkuk, and Zephaniah, and he was under the reigns of both Manasseh and Josiah, and Josiah was a king and things were going, so there's, there was you know, good things happening. One of the few times in the history um, in Israel, or in Judah, at least. And there's people coming up against them. So Nineveh's coming. And we know previously Hezekiah was king. And uh, it, we're going to get there in verse 11 of chapter 1. He sends, we believe, verse 11 is speaking of the Rabshika, which is a title of somebody coming and basically declaring that to Israel, you're done. Give up. It's not going to work. And uh, God has a different opinion on that. And as usual, his opinion matters. I remember working one time and we're talking about the weather or something and they're like, you know, God's in control and I was surprised that an unbeliever would say that and he's like it's kind of like being at home. Everyone in the house had a vote but only my dad's vote counted so if we didn't want to eat dinner it didn't matter. So you know, God allows us to go through life but ultimately he is the one in charge and if he says something that's it. We're talking about that in Sunday school today. Um, Good thing Jesus didn't have a temper, right? He said, light be and light was. So if he just said, float, you're going to float. So if he got mad and had a temper and said something, you know, blow up, well, guess what? (laughs) You're going to blow up. So words are important, especially to him, because everything he says has power. And he has stuff to tell us, so praise the Lord that he shares with us. And uh, we know that he came from... Verse one, he was an Elkashite. So we came from Elkash again. We, didn't, we don't know where that is. Most people believe it was in the Galilee area. And the name Capernaum, where Jesus spent a lot of his ministry, actually means, Caper um, means city of Nahum. So a lot of people believe that might have been the actual place where he was. And the biggest thing about this book, I think why it's recorded for us, there was a lot of nations that had been destroyed in the past. God didn't put them in the Bible. There's a lot of things that happen to people that God didn't put in the Bible. He put things relevant to his son and for our admonition, the New Testament tells us. Anything that can build us up, that we can learn more about his character and his nature. And uh, so Nineveh, and again we mentioned, it it was around all the way from early back in Genesis. It has been here a long time at this point. And they weren't doing well. And a hundred years before this, the book of Jonah happened. Jonah went in and gave the shortest message that we have recorded in the Bible. And he basically says, repent or you're going to be destroyed. Because he didn't like them. Because they were really bad people. They would skin people alive. They would take over cities. They would put holes through their jaw. And they would put a rope through all the holes, one after the other, like a fish on a string. And they would march them out of cities. And they were on their way to mess with God's children. And he's like, "That's, that's enough. I've had enough. And now you're done. And the way he stopped that, earlier was he sent Jonah and Jonah didn't want to go unlike we might not want to go not because he was scared that they were going to do it to him but because we know at the end of the book he says I know you're going to forgive him (laughs) you're gracious and sometimes people think the God of the Old Testament is this big mean God they might read Nahum and not get that out of it but uh, he's the same today yesterday and forever we're going to maybe get to that at the end too he was a gracious God in the Old Testament but he can't overlook sin and it was not only the, maybe the shortest message through Jonah, but it might have been the greatest revival ever, too. And, uh, and again, that was one of the points we made one of the two times I taught before, is that it doesn't tell us, but when... Yeah, I said this was going to be short. I haven't started yet. But. <laughs> when, when Jonah ended up going there, what didn't happen, well, we don't know, but what he didn't record was... That he came, he preached, they repented, he left. He went up on a mountain, he waited, forgot to destroy it, and it didn't happen. And I can only assume that he left. So what did they know? There was no one there to disciple him. There was no one there. To, his word wasn't going forth anymore. And how important it is that, especially for our kids, it just doesn't happen naturally. People aren't born with a desire to want to know God. The Holy Spirit comes alongside everybody, but there's got to be an effort going forth. Spend time with people. God's really patient. Sometimes we don't like the fact that people aren't coming along quicker than we want them to be, but then when it's us not moving along, we're glad that God's patient. So have God's heart and just be patient with people and and stick to it. God's desire and method that he set forth for people to grow is to give them the word and to love on them and to keep giving them the word and to keep loving on them. And he was very patient. And God saw the works of Nineveh, And he sent a prophet. Then God saw their repentance, and he sent salvation. He waited. And now, again, they're not doing well. And God sends a prophet. And there's no repentance. So now God is going to bring judgment. He's going to bring wrath. And we know that's one whole lesson last time, I believe, was spent pretty much the difference between receiving wrath and receiving correction. God, God already poured his wrath out upon his son so that we don't have to. And if you don't receive his son and you think you're going to stand there without him, then you're going to have to receive his wrath. The Bible tells us that there's none righteous, no, not one. We're all guilty of sin. And as you see the penalty for sin, that should only make us worship Jesus more. So as you go through Nahum and see what God will do to people that aren't saved because of sin. It's a good remember. It's a good reminder for us. Um, Jesus did a lot for us. We can't even imagine what He did on the cross. Somehow, I mean, he. he some people say, you know, the penalty, the wages of sin is death, and they talk about the the suffering. Um, but He didn't die and go into hell and in hell pay the penalty and then come out three days later, because He said it is finished while He was on the cross. On the cross, he took God's wrath for all of eternity somehow. And then he went down in victory. So he, he was separated. And again, that's the, that's the issue, is death, right? What does the word death mean? And death, biblically, just means separated, to be separated from something. We think of death because if I was to fall down right here, my body's here, but something left. I got separated from my body. And then where does my soul go? And uh, the Bible tells us that Real death is when you're separated from God forever. So I'm not separated from God. I actually get to get closer to him. I get a new body, and I get to be in his presence, which is why in Revelation, when he talks about the great white throne judgment, and he said, this is the second death, and then he casts them away from him. So being out of the presence of God is the penalty for sin, and Jesus suffered that somehow on the cross, which is why reading Psalm 22, right, it begins with the verse... With the saying that Jesus said, and most people, many people believe he quoted the whole psalm from the cross because they were wondering if you're the Messiah, you're supposed to be sitting on a throne as a king, but instead he sat there and he said, "My God, My God, why have you forsaken me?" And that's actually the beginning of that song, that psalm. And if you read Psalm 22, it talks about the Messiah being put up. They nailed. There was holes in his hands. They, they put him on a cross. He's like, "No, this was written that it was supposed to happen," and he took the the punishment there. So we get to no wrath. So first six verses, Nahum one. The burden against Nineveh, the book of the vision of Nahum the Elkishite. God is jealous, and the Lord avenges. The Lord avenges and is furious. The Lord will take vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. The Lord is slow to anger. And great in power, and will not at all acquit the wicked. The Lord has his way in the whirlwind, and in the storm, and the clouds are the dust of his feet. He rebukes the sea and makes it dry, and dries up all the rivers. Bashan and Carmel wither, and the flower of Lebanon wilts. The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, and the earth heaves at his presence. Yes, the world and all who dwell in it. Who can stand before his indignation? And the obvious answer is nobody. And who can endure the fierceness of his anger? Nobody. His fury is poured out like fire, and the rocks are thrown down by him. And we read, again, we covered much of this already the last two times, but it says, you know, I thought jealousy was a sin. A lot of people would read, and they read in verse 2, God is jealous. And the difference about God being jealous is it's listed as a work of the flesh. Um, but we get jealous of things. God gets jealous for things. He knows if you're an idol, he's jealous of you because you're going after an idol. And he's not jealous because he needs your attention. But he's jealous for you because he knows that idol is only going to destroy you. So he's, doing, he's jealous for you on your behalf, where we get jealous of things on our own behalf. Just like anger. Is, is it wrong to be angry? Well, God gets angry. I don't want to see it. And again, I mentioned that <laughs> going through. We're going to be in awe of this side of him. We are gonna. We know now his love. It says that we know that we're his children. We know that we're saved because the Holy Spirit sheds his love abroad in our heart. And he comes to us, and he's going to sing over us, and he's going to feed us. And we're going to have this awesome time after he removed us before the wrath comes, wrath comes upon the world. And we're going to be sitting up in heaven with him after all the demonic angels are kicked out and have come down to the earth and, and it's literally hell breaking loose on earth for seven years and then all of a sudden he's going to say it's over I'm going to go get him and the judgment's coming and then we're going to ride with him on horses and he's going to be mad and I think we're going to be looking at him like is that still you? <laughs> it's, I, I don't know if people, if I if we get that view of him very often, because he doesn't reveal that to us, because he doesn't, because we're on the other side of that, because of Jesus, and it's only going to cause us to look at him differently and better and uh, be in awe. And like sometimes people say, in heaven we're not going to sin, but I mean, after that, I don't know if you're going <laughs> to. You might have your a different opinion on sin because of your love for him. Um, but this jealousy and he avenges. That's a it's a different. Thing on it, and vengeance is God's work. It's different than chastening, and you can talk, you can read Second uh, Peter three that his patience doesn't equal failure, right? Some people think God hasn't come back yet. He's looking the other way on sin, and uh, it, it means he must have given up. He's not going to do it. But you can read that on your own if you want. No, he's going to do it. He's just very patient, and um, and he's love, right? God is love. It, it doesn't say that he loves, although he does. But he actually is the definition of love. And I don't think we can fully grasp that being human, having a sin nature, not understanding it, being in time, space, and matter. God created time, space, and matter. He's outside of time, space, and matter. And anything other than that is difficult to grasp. His spirit can bring a truth to you. But until we get up there, it says, then we will see him. We will know him, for we will see him as he is. Next thing you know, our eyes are going to be open. We're going to be learning of him forever. Um... Just like the whole strength thing, I've shared this multiple times too, because it was a new to me and it makes more sense. But some people say, "Is there anything too hard for God?" Well, there's things God can't do. You can't lie. You can't be wrong because he's God. We can't say something that's wrong because him saying it makes it happen. So that's impossible to lie if what you say becomes reality. Um, but. Is there anything too hard for God? And I think the spirit just sitting there and dwelling on that, what, what does hard even mean to him? It's like heavy. Can God make something so heavy he can't even pick up? Well, I think the more rational question is, is can you, God even think something's heavy? He's, gravity makes things heavy. He, he created gravity. He's outside of gravity. He looks at it, and he can just say up, and it goes up. He just talks. It's not heavy. So, so it's, like a, it's like a totally different... World, we're looking at it from a different perspective. And when people say, you know, if God is good, no, which is where we're going to go. That's the next thing. If God is good. But the the answer should be, we should be thinking it differently, which we'll get there when we get to verse 7. But he's slow to anger. He's great in power. And he will not acquit the wicked. And if we have time at the end, we might go there because that reminds me of Exodus 34 when God asked Moses um, and he was going to get the, the two new tablets and uh, he declares his name to him and he's slow to anger. That's God's character. That's who he is. He's talking about himself. And uh, just reading about in verse 3 about the Lord has his way in the whirlwind and in the storm and the clouds of the dust to his feet and again, many of you know, many of you might not. I was a construction worker. I looked up, I worked on, I was a utility lineman and I worked with a lot of very large, very strong, very bold, which you need to have courage. There's things that you do sometimes that are scary. And uh, one of the, be fit for the church. I've shared this with my wife. One of the guys had a shirt that Special Forces had on it and it says, nobody else is coming, you do it. <laughs> just just do it. And uh You don't let people know if you're scared. It just doesn't look good. Forget about crying. You can't even look scared. They're they're just mainly, and they are, and uh, it's good to be if you're doing that. Um, There's good to be that way to be a man. (laughs) We don't need to make women out of men. Our society's messed up. We need men. Um, But when there's a storm, you actually work more and you can see people. I look at these guys that could crush me very easily. I'm the smallest guy in almost every shop I've ever worked at, and uh, you're out there, and the thunder's going, and the wind's blowing, and you have to get out into a dangerous situation in good weather and do it in bad weather, and people's attitudes change. Storms can be humbling. Look at what it did to the apostles in the boat that used to be professional fishermen. God can break anybody. He doesn't need help. You don't have to ask him, okay, I think I'm a little full of myself. Can you break me? He can do it all on his own. And I just found in one commentary, it said, they quoted from NASA, and it said, God is, they didn't say God is over nature, Um, but the power of a storm is severe. Some storms are very powerful. In fact, during its life cycle, a hurricane can expand as much energy as 10,000 nuclear bombs. That's according to NASA. And that's him, like, breathing. Sometimes he says he just breathes it out of his nostrils. He brings a storm. And that's just him huffing. That's not him yelling. That's not him even speaking. That's just his all-powerful. Not only is he stronger, but he's the source of all power. His fury is poured out like fire, and that should make us quick to repent. We should be humble before him. And I didn't even get to hear it yet. I taught Sunday school during the message this morning, but I know we talked about fear. And we were talking about that with kids. And uh, I asked their kids, are you afraid of your dad? They're like, no. I'm like, well, if you're pulling your sister's hair and he walks in the room, are you afraid? They're like, yeah. I said, so being scared of your dad, it tells us in Hebrews, right, that we learn how to reverence God by learning our, our reverencing our parents. And our parents do it for their own benefit. I didn't say that, God did. But, but your parents, I, did it to my children for my benefit. But God uses that to teach us to reverence him. That. And, and, how, and how much more ought we to and right, just looking at Adam Adam just walked in the cool of the garden with, talking to God that wasn't weird he was there because that's all he knew he was born into it, he was created into it and he just walked with God and what happened? the first time it mentions that he got scared he did something he wasn't supposed to he realized something true about himself and he hid and God's like, why are you hiding? <laughs> Knowing the answer. And he's like, well, because I was naked and I was scared. Yeah, the verse mentioned, verse is scared. You can go through Genesis. That's a good biblical tool, the law of first mention. If you're ever looking for a principle and you want to know the basis of it, go back to the first time in the Bible is was mentioned, and it usually gives you a good understanding of it. That's why going through Genesis is so important to have a good handle on Genesis. Even just the first three chapters, and uh, so Nahum, we already started it, but the first chapter is the what. The second chapter, two, is the how, and the first chapter is the why. So we're going to be talking about what: the destruction of Nineveh because of God. God's angry. How is He going to do it? He explains it before He does it. He tells you. He tells them this is what's going to happen, and this is what's going to happen, and this is what's going to happen. And it's kind of funny. Even one of the times he says, "You're going to be drunk." And you think, just despite God, they might not drink, just to prove them wrong. But nope, they were drunk. And it happened just as exactly as he said. And then why he did it is in chapter 3. So beginning, continuing with the what, um, verse 7, it says, Right after he says his fury is poured out like fire, the rocks are thrown down by him. The Lord is good. And that almost seems to be a contradiction. But is God righteous? Well, if he's righteous, he can't overlook sin. It's good that he judges sin. If he lets sin into heaven, then heaven would be just like this. He promises something better, and he's going to provide it. And he made a way through his son. The Lord is good and a stronghold in the day of trouble and Israel at this time was in trouble, these people were surrounding him. So one, he's good, because if any one of these people wanted to get saved, anyone in the city, even though the city itself is going to be destroyed, that doesn't mean any one of them individually couldn't have been saved and gone to heaven as soon as they perished. He's made a way. The gospel is true, and it works. He can't go against his word. And he is good. He made a stronghold in the day of trouble. And God is comforting. Israel through their punishment we don't have to worry about an enemy God is taking care of the enemy and he knows those who trust in him anybody that trusted him now this was a letter and a prophecy for the Ninevites so they could hear this they knew there was a way out he always provides a way out but they couldn't stop it from coming but they can change their situation afterwards because what God's word says is true verse 8, but with an overflowing flood, he will make an, under end, an utter end of its place, and darkness will pursue his enemies. What do you conspire against the Lord? He will make an utter end of it. Affliction will not rise up a second time. In other words, there's not going to be a second chance, because this is their second or third or fourth chance. He already came to them through Jonah. He's like, this time you're done. Don't think that last time I repented. If you don't repent, I am going to come. And there's going to be a time, like Second Peter says, that people say, oh, he's been saying he's coming back for a long time. He's not going to come back. Well, one day he is coming back. And he's going to say, that's it. Then he says, affliction will not rise up a second time. Verse 10, for while tangled like thorns and while drunken like drunkards, they shall be devoured like stubble fully dry. And Nineveh, we know, was destroyed by both Medes and Babylonians. The Assyrians came out three times against them and were victorious. So they were in there. They had a huge fortress. Nineveh was a fortified city, unlike anything that you would see today. We're going to read they had a 150-foot-wide moat around the whole city. It was... I can't remember, three to five chariots, just like on Ben-Hur, they could race on top of the wall. It was nine stories high, I believe, and they had, or it was a hundred, it was a hundred foot tall wall around the outside, and then they had hundred foot towers above the hundred foot wall. So the towers where they were looking to oversee for enemies coming were 200 feet high. It was a, it was a, a, a miraculous feat that this thing even got built, and they were arrogant, and they had rivers coming underneath to supply them water if they got sieged. And the sieged, again, is when the enemy comes and surrounds you and tries to starve you out. And they had decades' worth of food and water inside. They didn't have to come out. They were just sitting in there. It's like Babylon. That's how Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom ended up. And oh, I think it was Belshazzar. He was in there, and he was drinking and having fun and thinking, ah, there's an enemy outside. There's nothing they can do. And then the hand on the wall came, mini, mini, tenkel of harsin says, your days are numbered, you've been wanting, and you're done. God's like, I don't care if you think you're secure, you're done. And we know that, as Daniel interpreted it, he told him, you're not going to survive the night. And he was literally killed that night, not knowing what could happen. Thought he was safe and secure. That's how Nineveh is right now, as this is being preached. It's the, at the height of their kingdom, the strongest army known to man, the strongest fortress anywhere in the world, and they were arrogant, and they were secure. I don't know if that, I don't even want to bring up our country. <laughs> we seem to tempt God. No one's ever beyond the arm of God. We do need to ask God to forgive us and to be gracious with us. And they know they were arrogant. In verse 11, from you comes forth one who plots evil against the Lord, a wicked counselor. And I spent a lot of time on it last time. And actually, we we read the whole letter and read the whole account in two different books on what happened, um, well-documented. And we believe that that person, the evil counselor, was the Rabshika sent from Nineveh, the king of Assyria. In verse 12, it says, thus says the Lord, though they are safe and likewise many, yet In this manner they will be cut down. When he passes through, though I have afflicted you, I will afflict you no more. For now I will break off his yoke from you and burst your bonds apart. The Lord has given command concerning you. Your name shall be perpetuated no longer. Out of the house of your gods I will cut off the carved image and the molded image. I will dig your grave, for you are vile." Can you imagine God writing that to you in a letter? I'm going to dig your grave. That's not a good day. I want to hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the rest of the Lord. That's how he greets the ones that he brings home. And uh, so verses 12 and 13, we believe he's speaking to Israel, they have afflicted you, but they're not going to afflict you anymore. And then God goes back, and then he starts talking to uh, the Assyrians again. So verse 15, Behold, and this might sound familiar, on the mountains of the feet of him who brings good tidings, who proclaims peace, O Judah, keep your appointed feasts, Perform your vows, for the wicked one shall no more pass through you. He is utterly cut off. And I don't know if you remember when the Reb came, and he threatened, and he said, Do you think that your God is going to save you? Don't listen to Hezekiah. All the other nations, their gods were defeated. He came in, and got, God, through a prophet, told Hezekiah, He goes, Don't worry. They're going to turn around. They're not coming back. And they ended up receding. They heard a rumor, and then... They were woke up in the morning and uh, an angel of the Lord had killed 185,000 of them overnight in their sleep. God can do whatever he wants. You think that would have caused them to repent. What does he have to do to get through to you? And that's the thing, that God will do something to get through to you. And it's not because he hates you, it's because he loves you. And sometimes it's a hard truth and it's not comforting and a lot of people don't hear it in church because sometimes people come to places where they just hear what they want to hear because it makes them feel good but the truth is God cares more about your eternal well-being than he does your physical comfort while you're here God will make you uncomfortable if it's better for you in heaven and isn't that what grace is grace God's riches at Christ's expense but grace is getting something you don't deserve so if you think you can earn grace by definition it's impossible grace grace means it's not deserved So if you did something to deserve grace, then it's a work. It's not grace anymore. So God wants to bless you eternally. You might get blessed by going through a difficult situation by faith. You just trust in him, even though you're at your ends. Some people get paralyzed for life and write books and have a huge ministry from a wheelchair, and she's awesome. And she just worships God. He can do what he wants. He's in charge. And if she gets she would never have asked for that. Who in their right mind would ask for that? But if that's what ne- needed to happen for her to have a better eternity and she didn't want it and God did it anyways, that's grace. We're going to be dead a long time. I want a good eternity. This is nothing. God, you know, if you could That's an old saying, right? If you could have everything now and nothing for eternity or nothing now and everything for eternity, what would you want? Well, it's an easy choice to say if you were dying right now. But... Most people say, well, I want everything now and everything later. And you can't have it, so now you've got to choose. Am I going to just give in and let you do what you do and go through it by faith? Because sometimes we don't understand. And that's what faith is. Faith is the substance of things hoped for and the evidence of things not seen. I'm living as if I believe it's true, even though I don't have it right now. Because he said, it, and obviously it's quoting Hebrews 11, and he said if you have it now, then you don't hope for it. So everything that we're living for, we don't have yet. Abraham, it says, all these people were looking for a city whose maker was God, and they weren't in it yet. They knew that how they live their life now was going to help them attain it. And it looks like there's different levels and different things going on. It's pretty vague about exactly what our itinerary in heaven will be day to day, if there even is days, because I think time is going to end, and you figure that out. But (laughs) God is eternal, It's not a lot of time. It's when there's no more time. But sometimes we can sit there and say, again, we went through, it tells us in 7, the Lord is good. And sometimes people say, well, if the Lord is good, then how come? And if you're a believer and you love God and you know his word is good, then we should be saying, since God is good, then what does this mean? How does what I'm going through look like and the truth that God is good. And now I'm not complaining. Now I'm just seeking. Two people, an angel came up to Gabriel and said, something's going to happen in their lives. One was Mary. One was Ze- Zechariah. right? And one of them said that you're going to be pregnant even though you've never been with a man. She's like, how can that be? And obviously God knew her heart. So she wasn't doubting. She's just like, uh, can you fill in some blanks here? I don't know. And then the other came and said that you're going to have a child, even though they were older, and he's going to be a prophet, and he's gonna, John the Baptist's dad, right? And he's like, Well, how can that be? And he was more doubting. And he's just like, You know who I am? I like the way Ken Graves teaches this because he's very manly. He's got a deep voice. And <laughs> the way he goes through this is kind of like, Be quiet. You know who you're talking to? I-, I came from God. Like, believe me. What are you, an idiot? And uh, because he was doubting, it's one thing to be skeptical; it's another thing to be doubting. And if we sometimes we don't know things, but if you come to it in the light of, I know your word is true, and I know that you're good, and I don't understand this, but I'm just going to walk by faith, and I'm going to go forward, and I know you have something good planned out of it, even though because we think of good as comfort, sometimes things are uncomfortable, especially as Americans, and I don't want to go through this, and uh, that's why. The Bible talks about a sacrifice of praise. Sometimes we have to give him thanks for things that we don't even sense are good to ourselves. But is God always there? Is he always in control? Is he scared of anything? Is he, can he take care of a problem if he wanted to? Well, if he's allowing it in my life and he could do something about it, I'm not going to say, if God is good, why did he do it? I'm gonna get, I should be saying, since God is good, what does this mean? And even if I don't understand it, I'm going to go forward in that truth. Pastor Jeff used to say that all the time. Don't throw out things you don't understand. Or don't throw out things that you do understand because of things you don't understand. If you don't understand what's happening, that doesn't mean God's not good anymore. You know God is good, so don't throw that out. So now what does this mean in my life? God is good. Now we get to the... Chapter 2, the how, and then he describes very clearly most people that are skeptics of the Bible said, obviously this was written years after this, because there's no way he could have known. In fact, God was funny, because not only did it happen just as he said, but then he covered all the evidence, so people can't say he knew about it, because it wasn't until 100 years ago that we found it and realized, oh, it happened just as he said So he couldn't have even made it up because the evidence was buried. So chapter 2, verse 1, how Nineveh is getting judged. He who scatters has come up before your face. Man the fort, watch the road, strengthen your flanks, fortify your power mightily. So he's telling them, I'm coming, get ready, try to stop me. This isn't going to be an accident. You're not going to say, Oh, I didn't know he was coming. Or if I knew he was going to do that, then I would have. He's like, No, I'm coming, get ready. You're going to know it's me. For the Lord will restore the excellence of Jacob like the excellence of Israel. For the emptiers have emptied them out and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his mighty men are made red, the valiant men are in scarlet, the chariots come with flaming torches in the day of his preparation and the spears are brandished. The chariots rage in the streets. They jostle one another in the broad roads. They seem like torches. They run like lightning. He remembers his nobles. They stumble in their walk. They make haste to her walls, and the defense is prepared. And now all of a sudden, he's, those verses, he's describing the the excuse me, the Medes and the Babylons and the attacking forces that are coming that he's going to use against, against Nineveh. Verse 6, the gates of the river are opened and the palace is dissolved. That we'll find out literally happened. It is decreed, verse 7, that she shall be led away captive, she shall be brought up, and her maidservants shall lead her as with the voices of doves beating their breasts, Though Nineveh of old was like a pool of water, now they flee away. Halt, halt, they cry, but no one turns back. And we know that the Tigris River ran underneath this city, underneath the wall, and it provided water for them so that they would be able to withstand, again, like I mentioned before, siege. They didn't have to go outside of the wall to get water, they were well furnished and We read about that storm in Chapter 1. Well, while these people were outside and the Ninevites were sitting inside Hadi, there was a huge storm that came. And it rained, and it rained, and it was a, a, a monument, and the Tigris flooded. And when it flooded, it went underneath the wall, and there was a two and a half mile portion of this wall that collapsed. And then as soon as the water dried up from the flood they were able to, the Medes and the Babylonians were able to go in, and that's how they defeated him. And we're about to read next, but what the king uh, did, he didn't want anyone taking his stuff, so he actually started his own palace inside on fire, and he melted everything. And it's going to sound funny, but obviously once they got in, and they stole from him, so they actually had to, they dug up all of the melted gold and silver, and they took it, right? So in verse 9 it says, Take spoil of silver, take spoil of gold, there is no end of treasure or wealth of every desirable prize. And uh, many pastors have said that archaeologists and other people believe that if they ever find the rest of what's there, because it all got buried and it's somewhere or wherever they took it to, that whoever finds this, just like if they found um, the Ark of the Covenant in it, wherever that treasure, Solomon's treasure is, that that and this would instantly make whoever had it the richest man in the world by far. There was, they had huge treasures in, uh, hidden in the palace. Verse 10, That She is empty, she is desolate, and waste. The heart melts and knees shake. Much pain is in every side, and all their faces are drained of color. Where is the dwelling of the lions and the feeding place of the young lions? Where the lion walked, the lioness and the lion's cub, and no one made them afraid. The lion tore in pieces enough for his cubs, killed for his lioness, filled his caves with prey and his dens with flesh. Behold, I am against you, says the Lord of hosts. And the Lord of hosts means the Lord of many, the Lord of the angelic army. I will burn your chariots in smoke and the sword shall devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the voice of your messengers shall be heard no more. And again, it was, I think it, actually it was a 2,000 years, which was a little while ago, right? 2,000 years after that happened is the first sign that anybody ever found of where Nineveh was. It was a complete, just, it was trashed. God was very thorough. He used people just like he can use anybody. He used, these, he used, uh, he used them against his own people, against Israel, to chasten them. But their hearts weren't right in it. And now we see God chastening them because of their wickedness. So, chapter 3. Verse 1, woe to the bloody city. So now we are entering the why God is doing it. First he tells us what he's going to do. Second of chapter, he, very specifically in detail to so much that people, skeptics, are convinced that it was written afterwards because it was they found the ruins, the archaeologists, that it actually had happened exactly just like it said. It's good reading if you're interested. You can look that up and be in awe of how accurate God was through that whole thing. And we're just finding out, some some people are just finding out that God's word is true, believe it or not. (laughs) Like, we didn't know all along. And uh, now he's going to tell us the why he did it. And he calls Nineveh a bloody city, and I'd spent the first time talking quite a bit about that. In his own, they used to cut off heads, and he would hang it over his dinner table, and it'd be dripping blood as he's sitting there eating with his family. He skinned people alive and wrapped them around posts and had pillars on it. And they found a lot of archaeologies. Uh, i have found uh, still the forms in there with sayings on what they did and actual human skin flayed. Like we talk about the Indians doing scalps. They did the whole body. They're a bloody city full of lies and robbery. Its victim never departs. Verse 2, the noise of a whip and the noise of rattling wheels, of galloping horses, of clattering chariots, horsemen charged with bright sword and glittering spear, There is a multitude of slain, a great number of bodies, countless corpses. They stumble over the corpses. Because of the multitude of harlotries of the seductive harlot, the mistress of sorceries, who sells nations through her harlotries and families through her sorceries. Verse 5, Behold, I am against you. We've read that a few times. I think God's making a point. Says the Lord of hosts, I will lift your skirts over your face. I will show the nations your nakedness, and the kingdoms your shame. You're going to be open before everybody, and I'm going to make an open spe- spectacle to you, and I'm going to use you as an example of what happens to people that are ungodly. Verse six: I will cast abominable filth upon you, make you vile, and make you a spectacle. I don't know how more graphic God could be. <laughs> how much more appreciative should we? I didn't just. A- Ashamed that if one of the thoughts that I had was put on a screen before us in eternity, I'd be ashamed. God says, I'm going to make an open vial. How thankful, Lord. It says, when Jesus took the cross and he took our sin about it, he said he despised the shame. I hate being shamed. It's embarrassing because of pride, but it's right to not want that to be known. And again, how much more thankful for what Jesus did for us on the cross, willingly. And how much more should we ought to be living in the truth of what he accomplished for us and then turn from that so that it doesn't have to be an embarrassment anymore. Verse 7, It shall come to pass that all who look upon you will flee from you and say, Nineveh is laid waste. Who will bemoan her? Where shall I seek comforters for her? And again, they were brutal to other people. No one's going to feel sorry for them. They made a lot of enemies by fear and people believe there was probably a, a million people living in, in the city in Nineveh at this time it, it was a large city with a lot of people and they had a lot of strength and they were at the, the pinnacle of their dominance and they're like you know what I'm going to come in I'm going to destroy you and no one's going to feel bad for you and they're going to be glad that you're gone First, so again the Lord is good and no, Nahum means comfort so this isn't comforting for the Ninevites other than they could repent, but the world will be better that they're gone. Verse 8, Are you better than no Aman that was situated by the river that had the waters around her, whose rampart was the sea, whose wall was the sea? Ethiopia and Egypt were her strength, and it was boundless, Put and Lubim were your helpers. Yet she was carried away. She went into captivity. Her young children also were dashed to pieces. At the head of every street they cast lots for the honorable men, and all her great men were bound in chains. You also will be drunk. You will be hidden. You also will seek refuge from the enemy. All your strongholds are fig trees and ripened figs. If they are shaken, they fall into the mouth of the eater. Surely your people in your midst are women, because all their men would have died in the battle. The gates of your land are wide open for your enemies. Fire shall devour devour the bars of your gates. So he's basically saying you're going to be closed in, thinking that you're safe. You're going to be overthrown, and you're going to be done. And I find it, if you remember, when we had gone, the Reb Sheikah we talked about in chapter 1, verse 11, that had come to Hezekiah in kings and said, why you don't listen to Hezekiah? He's going to say The Lord's going to save. And what did he say? He goes, look at all these other nations and look at all their gods and look what we did to them. And it's kind of like God saying the same thing to them. You know, you said that, and you thought I couldn't hear, and you thought I was defenseless. Well, guess what? I beat you. And now here I am saying it to you. You knew that wasn't true, and now you think because all these other cities, that were, were you think you're better than them. Out of your own mouth, right, God's going to judge you. You reap what you sow. And it just talks about their brutality. These were horrible, miserable people. In verse 14, Draw your water for the siege. Fortify your strongholds. Go into the clay and tread the mortar. Make strong the brick kiln. I'm coming, get ready. If you think you can defeat me, try the best that you can. Give it all you got. I'm giving you a warning. 15, there the fire will devour you. The sword will cut you off. It will eat you up like a locust. Make yourself many like the locust. Make yourself many like the swarming locust. You have multiplied your merchants more than the stars of heaven. The locust plunders and flies away. Your commanders are like swarming locusts, and your generals are like grasshoppers, which camp in the hedges on a cold day. When the sun rises, they flee away, and the place where they are is not known. Your shepherds slumber. Just Again, that hits home. People in charge are falling asleep, and you wonder, Lord, where are we as a nation? The shepherds slumber. O king of Assyria, your nobles rest in the dust. Your people are scattered on the mountains, and no one gathers them. Your injury has no healing. You've come to a point where it's beyond control. God tells us to pray for people. Sometimes people get to a point where, like God tells Jeremiah, He's like, you know what? I've given them opportunity, they're done. The Bible talks about blaspheming the Holy Spirit. There's only one unforgivable sin. The Holy Spirit comes to convict people of sin, of sin of judgment and of righteousness, tells us in John. And when you blaspheme the Holy Spirit, you're basically telling the only one that can save you that you don't want to be saved. It's kind of like we're ill. Everyone's sick because of sin. Sin is a sickness. God comes and says, you're ill. You were born that way. I don't blame you for it but I am the cure. And when you tell him you don't want the cure, if you're not willing to get the cure, then there is no help for you. Jesus is the only help and cure for sin, and he willfully comes to you and offers it. And if you reject that, then there is no hope for you. And he'll keep coming back, and there comes a point in your time, just like Pharaoh, right? Pharaoh hardened his heart, Pharaoh hardens his heart, and there comes a point in time when you, when you just say, you know what? And God knows you're done. And when, that, when it comes to that point, there is no healing, there is no help. Verse 19, your injury has no healing. Your wound is severe. All who hear news of you will clap their hands over you, for upon whom has not your wickedness passed continually. Everyone's going to be glad you're gone. God is doing the world a favor. They were only leading people away from him. God will use people like that to draw people closer to him. Difficulties aren't necessarily bad, But if you're the one that's the difficulty in someone else's life, you better get right with God and make sure that you're right with him. He is good, and he is good forever. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And just thinking of if God predicted that to Nineveh, and it happened exactly as he said, as we read Revelation, it's going to happen exactly as he said, and he's coming, and we need to warn people because nobody wants to be on this side of God. God's wrath, reading this, should cause you to preach the gospel to people that don't know him. If he's given you his heart, you wouldn't want this on your worst enemy. You don't, nobody wants to hear God saying, I'm going to dig your grave, you're vile, I'm done with you. And no one has to hear that. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a message of faith and it's a confession away. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever, Hebrews 13, 8. For I am the Lord, I do not change, Malachi 3, 6. It's the same God of the Old Testament, the same God of the New Testament. And uh, I'm not going to go there for time, but Exodus 33:18 to 34, 9. You can read it on your own time. Just by hearing people say the Lord is good, slow to anger, but he's not going to acquit the wicked. It says that in Nahum 1, that's the exact same thing when Moses said, show me your glory. And he said, well, you can't see me and live. So go to the cleft of the rock. I'll put my hand over you. And he walked by and he said his name. And that's his name, the Lord, slow to anger, abounding in mercy. But he also says he will not acquit the wicked. He's just declaring his nature. He can't not be who he is. He's good if you want him to be. He's always good even if you don't want him to be. But you can be with him forever if you just submit to him. So Father, we just thank you that you're true, your word is true. We thank you that you can't change. Lord, some of these this side of you can surprise those of us who know your love, know your care. Lord, we call you daddy, Abba. You care for us with everything. you spoil us, but we know that you hate evil. You can't look upon it. You're righteous, and we know your love demands that you take care of that because you have promised good to those forever who are going to be with you so we we thank you that this side of it is true we thank you that we don't have to put down evil lord it's scary and we're not equipped for it lord we just need to trust in you and thank you for being a good father and uh, anyone here that doesn't understand that or hasn't submitted to it or isn't willing we just pray that you would soften hearts that you would draw people to yourself and that you would show us the way through Jesus to get to the Father, that we might get to you and spend eternity with you and be forgiven of everything that we've done, Lord, and let that bring comfort to us, Lord, the fact that you've dealt with evil, our evil, and the evil around us. You are a good God, and we just thank you, in Jesus' name, amen.